Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. In our previous episode, we heard how cybersecurity experts are increasingly worried about international incidents and even the possibility of a cyber war. One of the areas most at risk and the most likely to provide a trigger to conflict is critical national infrastructure. An attack on power, sanitation, healthcare, or even the banking system could be catastrophic, but it could happen. Back in the 1990s, ethical hacker Joe Carson was already concerned about how a power outage could disrupt medical services. Then it was the Y2K bug that worried the experts. Today, it's state-sponsored actors. Now chief security scientist and advisory CISO at Thycotic, Carson has pitted himself against CNI's defences, and he's found them wanting. And his experience in penetration testing and hacking leads him to think that cybersecurity, and especially offensive cyber, needs governance so we can protect the technology that we can't live without. It's critical and really important to society um, early in my career, I worked in the medical record side of things and in ambulance service. And somebody mentioned to me, you know, what was my worst ever fear? And my worst fear at that point, I remember it was even back in 1999. I was basically you know, working in Y2K, interesting enough, at that time. And when we were doing a phase, we were changing electricity um, over from generators to make sure that if Y2K did happen, that we would still have energy to continue providing uh, services uh, ambulances, paramedics, you know, to emergency scenes. To, and it was really about saving lives. And that really made me realize we actually had a, a major issue during one of the, the, the kind of changes of the phases that we end up having downtime. And it was about 21 minutes or so was the SLA that if we weren't providing services for 21 minutes, it was pretty certain that someone would die without having emergency services. And for me, that was really what kept me up at night. And it made me realize that, you know, all of those things that provide services to society in general, especially, you know, medical, um, water, electricity, all can actually have a serious impact on life. So for me, this is really where, you know, the criticality of critical infrastructure, you know, whether it being communications, uh, whether it being the healthcare, whether it being electricity, um, you know, it's, it's all fundamental to society and how it works. And uh, for me, you know, making sure that those services are, are secure, making sure we reduce the risk and we make them more resilient um, is a real kind of top priority for me. How great is the threat to the sector at the moment? The threat is real. It is you know, very, very significant and we really have to take action. The good thing is, is that since Stuxnet, uh, you know, a number of well, over 10 years ago now, since Stuxnet, and also more recently the attack in Ukraine, in the energy sector there, it has increased the priority. It's increased the investment from the government and from uh, you know, uh, different organizations to really make sure that security is a priority. Um, and anyway, the reason why the threat is real is because the convergence of both OT and IT is happening. There's overlapping. They're more, more connected than we ever were before. So the concept of ergap systems is no more reality. It's not there anymore. When you have humans moving in between technology, there is no such thing as an ergap. So the threat is real. 
Um, there is active attacks going on. Um, it's really when we have to make sure is that the intention and the motive isn't there to react or to trigger those um, motives into something that is, let's say, uh, catastrophic in nature. So attacks are ongoing, uh, mostly from nation state actors. Uh, sometimes you do get some opportunistic targeted attacks, which is from uh, criminal gangs, such as ransomware in order for monetary gain. Uh, but the threat is real. We really have to, we have to make sure that we make it more resilient as much as possible and that there isn't a domino effect because in a lot of cases, a lot of the energy sector, you know, all of these, there's, it's literally a supply chain. And if you impact one facility, it can actually have a, a domino effect to other facilities as well uh, because they are somewhat independent of each other. Um, so we have to make sure that they become much more de-risking, much more decentralized approach to reduce the impact of any potential you know, malicious motive um, that would occur. And we're in a situation right now where, you know, with a lot that's happening in the world, the stability side of things is that cyber war is escalating. Cyber impact is increasing um, in regards to the threat. And I really think that we now need to have, have you know, while we have a DEF CON for basically imminent war, I think we have to have a similar uh, DEF CON for uh, imminent cyber war. Yeah, certainly that's something that's being discussed, isn't it, in political as well as security and technology services. Absolutely. How are we seeing the attacks manifest themselves against national infrastructure? Is it oftentimes kind of a big bang approach or are we seeing more use of things like APTs to gain potential leverage in the future? You know, Are they pinpointed at particular weaknesses in the system potentially to move laterally or do the adversaries go directly after the most prominent targets give us some idea of the picture as you see it yeah right now it's mostly observe monitor see the weaknesses um lay in wait and until there's a need to you know action anything um any type of cyber attack is, is usually a preeminent to some type of physical uh, side of things it's a kind of preemptive uh, attack we've seen it uh, with the likes of uh, in Syria um, uh, several years ago uh, when there was attack uh, on basically some of the facilities there. So usually cyber um, is somewhat basically a preemptive uh, readiness um, or sometimes even, you know, it can be used in regards to, we've seen countries starting offensive programs as well uh, in regards to disabling certain military, you know, military facilities or military capabilities. So it is, it is increasing, it is real. Now, what's happening is, is that with, with those, uh, the increase in the threat, uh, what we're really seeing is the need in order to make sure that we you know, de decrease the risk. So for me, I think you know, looking at this from what's really happening is that uh, it's the motive side of things, which is really not the trigger. And that can be the difference. So for countries really need to look at, you know, it's from you were mentioned about APTs, APTs are really kind of like, let's say, uh, government, either government direct uh, employees, you know, doing cyber activities. And you also get into what I call a cyber mercenaries. Cyber mercenaries are, you know, let's say, cyber criminal gangs who also will do criminal activities such as ransomware, financial fraud, uh, business email compromise. But at the same time, when they're carrying out those type of activities, uh, certain nation states will actually provide them, uh, let's say, a blind eye for carrying out government uh, campaigns as well. So we do have those hybrid scenarios. And that also means that it's very difficult to do attribution 
when you have cyber mercenaries who's carrying out, uh, let's say, sanctioned government campaigns to really trace them back to government, uh, let's say, instructions or um, you know, uh, orders. So this is where we really have this kind of gray area right now. So, you know, for me, I think it's really important that, you know, when we get into those types of attribution side of things, we have to be very certain and very clear of who's behind it. Um, and attribution is one of the most difficult things in our industry. Attribution is, you know, in some regards, you know, it's you're waiting for the actor to create a, do a mistake. You're waiting for them to make mistakes. You're waiting for them to create more noise, to take more risk. And that's ultimately when you're able to do attribution. Without the attacker taking more risk, you sometimes have to revert to you know the old type of uh, you know uh, let's say uh, having spies or having human factor being able to provide you know let's say confidence in attribution as well. You have to have some type of insider there from the human side. Uh, but attribution is one of the most difficult things in our industry, um, and you do have a lot of that gray area where you have cyber mercenaries who are doing you know they're doing criminal activity as well. But it's the government who allow that as long as those criminals are conducting it against other countries, then uh, those governments will provide them safe havens uh, to carry out those activities. They go to some lengths for plausible deniability, certainly. Now, you've been involved, as you said, for a few years in this, a good few years, and you've carried out a number of exercises. So uh, one example was trying to get into a power station. Can you walk us through the process of that engagement, You know why you were doing it and what you had to do to prepare and what the major challenges are of actually getting into that critical infrastructure so that people can better understand how to defend it? A lot of the preparation in a, doing an, a campaign against the power station was the reconnaissance side. Reconnaissance is one of the areas that you really have to spend the most time on. Um, and it means that you're collecting a digital blueprint of the target. What you're really trying to understand about, you know, who's the people that works there? What types of systems are they using? Um, what types of versions um, is there previous contractors? What types of services do they actually get? Who do they order food from? Um, what's the delivery? What's the locations of those facilities? So that's a lot of the reconnaissance phase. And that's the most important part that actually any penetration test will carry out. It's the most critical phase. The mistake that I got when I first uh, conducted the penetration test was that my goals was really to find vulnerabilities and risks. Um, and the reason why I really like this penetration test, because it taught me a lesson. It taught me a lesson that, you know, doing fear it doesn't solve anything, um, and it doesn't actually have any types of goals other than really showing you know what could potentially happen. You're you're showing a a fearful you know you know possible future. So what I learned from the lesson and that particular one was basically one is working with the executives and the board, ultimately finding out that I still had to tie any of my findings back into the business justification into the business risk. So I always like these types of activities where I learn a lesson and it changes my mind and output. And this was one of those. Now, basically, one is the part of the reconnaissance side of things, what I quickly realized was that doing a, a penetration test against a power station, that it was very, very difficult um, in regards because the most challenging part was is that when you're targeting employees, when your basically goal is the power station, a lot of the power stations actually don't have huge amounts of people. There was maintenance workers, let's say command and control centers, specifically for observing you know, the flow, the lubricants, the energy uh, production. Um, and basically, there was very, very few people 
a lot of the people were actually more in basically other facilities such as the headquarters, which didn't, you know, that's where basically they were doing IT and administration. Um, the operations just kept separate. So it meant that, you know, where a lot of penetration tests, you know, today is focusing on social engineering, um, it was very quick to realize that it was going to be very difficult. You know, you could target the IT infrastructure through social engineering, but that was not the goal. The goal was actually the power station. So you had to look at other means. And ultimately, after doing a lot of research and a lot of, you know, finding out the other part was that, you know, a lot of pen testing gets into also the physical aspect of things. And these things are fortresses. They are armed guards. They, they have, you know, basically sands around so that even, you know, cameras, high fences. So you're also looking at a challenge. So in regards to even getting the physical side and, and getting in and taking a look at the facility. Um, and then, you know, when any, anytime there's armed guards, you're putting yourself at risk as well. So you also want to make sure that you're not putting yourself at harm's risk. So when I looked into this, really what I find was actually the best way to gain physical access, which is the only way to conduct the penetration test properly within timeframes and within the goals that I had, meant that I really had to get into physical. So from my planning, I found that actually going through supply chain and finding out different methods of actually getting into the power station through the suppliers was the best entry point, even to the point where you're looking at even potentially getting, you know, temporary jobs and contractors in order to actually go through the supply chain, um, even cleaning staff that were actually outsourced into other organizations that you would get in even uh, as a cleaner. Also to look at delivery for food delivery side of things as well. So you're looking at all the different supply chains and supply chain ultimately was the method that I was able to gain access physically. So that was the most challenging part. And it was also the most stressful and it was very time consuming as well. Uh, but ultimately when I was able to lure, you know, gain access into the power station itself, what you end up doing is you've seen that the most priority in the power station was not IT security. It was actually health and safety. It was all about the health and safety of the people, the facility. That was the main priority. And then even inside, there was a lot of security in place in regards to a lot of the cabling was in pipes. The computers had locked uh, cabinets. You couldn't physically gain access to the USB ports. So there's a lot of really great security in place. Uh, but the challenge was, ultimately, what I ended up finding was basically in the command and control was a piece of paper where I could gain access to engine uh, control and change the pressure or the lubricant or the flow in the air, uh, the pressure itself on the engine individually. And that, but you know, you're doing, you're talking about physical access, you know, getting in through all the security and changing, you know, the outcome of one engine um, and doing that per engine where you have something, you know, you've got over 50 engines doing this uh, you know, uh, facility. So ultimately what I find was that it was very, very difficult. And I was actually a bit kind of disappointed that, that was, wasn't making any progress, but ultimately then finding uh, one is that they had uh, unpatched operating systems, which I could see. Um, I also saw that they were running uh, software uh, on those operating systems that actually indicated that those systems also had uh, outbound internet connection. They were able to, let's say, stream certain music uh, to, to those uh, machines that were also uh, conducting command and control. Uh, but ultimately then finally sitting at the table was a printed piece of paper that was you know, several years old. I can't refer to the dates now. Um, it was several years old with all the default credentials and passwords. So you had this facility where, you know, from a physical fortress that was really, really difficult to get inside, that you're sitting looking at default credentials sitting on a piece of paper that was there for the SCADA control system. That was, you know, and the SCADA control system had advanced threat protection. 
It had all this advanced security. It's millions um, that was invested in this, you know, SCADA controls for the security that's sitting there with default credentials. So, you know, it's like, you know, you basically, you know, have this fortress and you're leaving the, you know, credentials on the table for anyone to go and unlock the door. So this is really getting into is that, you know, a lot of the facilities really focus around that physical aspect of things. Um, they, you know, when you see that, you see the cabinets, you see the lock computers, you see everything had a key to it that there was, you know, were places where you could go and couldn't go all for that health and safety focus. But ultimately sitting there with the security basically left with default configurations was a shock. It's just those tiny things that can trip up the whole mechanism. The whole protection falls down, doesn't it? Absolutely. And that, and the thing was is that when I also found out that they had default credentials, and I actually I knew it right away because when I see it, seen it on the paper, I'd already conducted um, one of the things. I mean, for me doing my preparation, I couldn't get access to a SCADA control system. I didn't have the funds. I didn't have the resources. They're expensive. They're limited um, in regards to who can actually obtain them. So what I ended up using was I found online that it was a training simulator uh, for basically training on the software. And I used basically the credentials for the training emulator software was the same that I saw sitting in the paper. So I immediately knew that it was the same credentials. Um, and we got the end of finding as well as that that was actually implemented by the consultants. The contractors who went and did the implementation um, had reused the same credentials and probably used in all facilities. Um, and you know, ultimately, when they hand the keys over to the operations team, there's no basically really check in and make sure that things are, you know, from a security perspective, hardened or changed from the implementation, you know, the constructions and implementation side of things. So, and this is really what you get into is that you know, you the focus is on one area, but you also need to make sure that you have somebody who's looking at security from all angles and making sure that when handovers happen that the handovers uh, make sure that they go through, you know, people process and technology, that you're actually making sure that, you know, uh, as they hand over to different uh, uh, teams, is that the security is actually from the previous team is no longer uh, known. Um, I had it when I, when I worked in a data center many, many years before, that when I moved from cage to cage, that the credentials I had were only active for that period of time that I was in the cage. And then when I moved out into another cage, all those credentials were rotated uh, for another team who came in behind who were doing auditing. So for me, I could never reuse the credentials again in the previous cage. So they were no longer valid. Uh, and we had to make sure as those handovers happened, and I call it the disclosure rate of credentials, is that as those handovers, handovers happen, is like the knowledge of those credentials are no longer known once it's been signed off. We do see that, though, don't we, that you've got different elements at place. Going back to some of the um, the introductions you made to that uh, that comment, to that case study, are we seeing convergence between information technology and operational technology as it comes to security? Or are they still pursuing quite different paths? Absolutely, there is a convergence happening, and it's all about you know efficiency. It's about using the data. Um, one thing I find, you know, prior to working, and you know, I've been more in past years. It's interesting. My 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 skills as a penetration tester has been evolved into really you know focusing today more on incident response. I've been dealing a lot more with ransomware cases and using my penetration skills in order to think like a hacker and how to basically you know to find out how they get into organizations. Now, prior to doing the power station, I did a lot of work in maritime. Ultimately, what I ended up finding in, in, is the same thing, 
today, if you purchase, uh, uh, let's say, hardware in, in a, let's say, an engine, for example, uh, or even you might purchase a vehicle today, or you might purchase a vacuum cleaner or a washing machine or a TV for your home. What I'm finding today is that you might own the physical device. So if you purchase an engine for a ship or an engine for a power station, you might own that physical device, but you don't own the data. And this is where really you're starting to see that as part of the, the productions of the those who are producing these engines are requiring you to have the ability to actually hand over the data. They retain ownership of the data. And you're seeing that also with vehicles today as well, is that when you sign a contract, these terms and conditions, you're actually given over the rights for those manufacturers to actually collect and use the data. They own the data. And data is becoming so valuable that allows them, of course, to understand trends and efficiencies, improvements. And it's critical. I, I understand the intentions, but the method of getting the data means that those organizations that you know have previously been air-gapped are opening themselves to a bigger risk because they're now converging both OT and IT together. And I've also seen it happening as well for things like you know, support teams and diagnostics in order to provide better understanding you know, of diagnostics. There's been a convergence of both IT and OT in order to provide much more scalability, efficiency, automation, um, and the value of data. Uh, but we really have to understand about you know, the risks that that actually implies and the potential risks that it exposes as well. Uh, so I think it's really critical here is that as we do have this convergence, is that we have to also make sure that security is by design, that aspects you put in place is configured and actually uh, configured correctly, and that it's being used and turned on. In many cases, it's not. Would you also then advocate a greater convergence between physical and IT security or cyber security? There are certain areas where absolutely yes. So, you know, there's, there's businesses which are, you know, have physical premises, they have physical locations, they have a lot of digital uh, IT infrastructure as well. So sometimes you know, there is absolutely cases where there is a convergence between both physical and uh, the actual IT digital side of penetration testing. Um, and and it's, it's an area, you know, the three, the three areas that's growing significantly is penetration testing, physical security, and uh, social engineering. It's all about people, processes, and technology. And it's about the combination of those, and it's about finding ways to abuse those in order to gain trust, in order to gain access. So, but there's some businesses, of course, which are purely online. Um, and, uh, you know, you can do basically, you know, digital penetration tests without the physical side. Um, so it really depends on the business and the business risk to what type of kind of activity that you really want to, 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 to do. For me, it's a pretty simple methodology. Um, my goal is to stay as stealthy as possible. So when I'm doing reconnaissance, as I mentioned earlier, the, the importance of reconnaissance phase, I take that data and I put it through a, a small algorithm that I have, and the algorithm will tell me different attack paths, which attack paths would be the most successful. And the algorithm that it works off is, is, is a few main components. Is one is how stealthy it will be. Um, also about how much resources it requires, how much time it will take. Um, and ultimately, you know, about uh, really kind of how successful it you know, will be. So you're taking all of those areas in, you put them in, and it gives me a rating of each, and then allows me to create a mean in order to understand which one is the best method that would be the most successful. Uh, so there's a set ethics that you know, we, we adhere to um, that's really important, and, and it's where we really get our values from. Um, but yeah, ultimately, I've got my own methodologies, staying stealthy, hiding as, as best as I can, don't create any noise. And ultimately, 
if I look at how, you know, my techniques that I use, I think the best way in order for organizations to defend against themselves and the ones that I find are the most successful is sometimes the ones that force me to take risks. Organizations who forced me to create more noise, to reuse my techniques. Um, one of the things I prefer also to live off the land quite a lot is, is use the tools within organizations um, to try and stay, you know, the less I introduce, the less I will be detected. So ultimately, you know, my goal is, is to make sure, you know, as, as hiding as well as possible. But if organizations force me to, let's say, to have to crack passwords every single day or to have to you know, use some of the techniques, it forces me to create more noise. And ultimately, the more noise I create, the better chance it has for defenders and IT teams and security teams of detecting me and therefore you know, you know, stopping me earlier. Um, one method I find as well is the, the more employees talk, the more employees are not afraid to speak out. If they see something suspicious and they ask one of their colleagues or they ask a cyber mentor on the team, um, therefore, you know, they will see something suspicious and, and detect the attack or phishing campaign much earlier. So these are the things we have to look at is, is look at penetration testers methodology and use that in order to understand the best way to defend. Because ultimately, it's about understanding those techniques and applying the techniques that will defend best against those. So at the tactical level, there are steps that can be taken. What about at the nation state, the strategic level to effectively deter others from attacking this infrastructure? Absolutely, it can be done. Um, it means one is making it more resilient um, because the more you de-risk it, the more difficult it is. I mean, I, I know we think about, you know, one thing we always look at is you know, the voting system in the U.S., um, about you know how it targeted it is and the attack it happens is that for me I think it's one is is because it's it's decentralized which is great I think that's one of the best values is when you have a decentralized system there's no single target um, one thing that I really thought you know that was great as well as Estonia Estonia came up with the uh, data embassy concept Estonia is a country very small in in the Baltics that uh, needs to make sure that in order to decentralize itself, it uses this concept of data embassies. And that actually spreads the country across multiple countries, which means is if there is an attack on Estonia, it actually means that it must attack multiple countries. Therefore, it triggers things like, you know, Article 5 in, in, in NATO. So I think, you know, the best way to defend is, is cooperation, is decentralizing as much as you possibly can so it makes less of a big target and many small targets, um, that will definitely make it more difficult for attackers. Um, but uh, definitely to make sure cooperation, transparency. And I do believe that also, you know, many countries are moving to this offensive, uh, but it's crucial to how you implement the offensive. Offensive should not be a military component. Uh, cyber should be separate from military. Um, and it must be conducted you know, definitely from government side of things. You know, if you move in the cyber offensive side, it can be a deterrent, but it must have oversight and it must be very, very well planned and making sure that it has uh, co you know, correct, legitimate uh, reasons for doing so. Uh, but it's, it's very difficult. It's a very gray area. But I think the best move forward is the cyber transparency cooperation it's a bit like what Brad Smith at Microsoft had mentioned, uh, Brad Smith, the, the president of Microsoft. He talked a few years ago about a Geneva Convention as well. It also needs a political side of things. This can't be done just by technology and by security. 
there must be a political element as well to support all of this, a good political framework to provide the backbone um, uh, to make sure that we're you know, working together and coordinating efforts. No single country can do this alone. That's what's important. It, it requires multiple country effort. Do not go alone in this in order to become better at resiliency, uh, better at defending, and also have a, a cyber offensive capability. Transparency is key and cooperation. Joe Carson on how cooperation and transparency and a new set of norms around offensive cybersecurity should be part of the international cyber landscape. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. In our next programme, we'll catch up with two experts on protecting a technology that's core to every business, email. That will be live on June the 8th. I hope you can join us then. In the meantime, you can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk and of course on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening. Security Insights is written and presented by Stephen Pritchard and is produced by ENS Media. www.ensmedia.com dot co dot uk